Hello, how are you? Thanks for listening to another podcast session. This is your host, Naziati Muhammad Yaakob at Talk Architecture Podcast. We will continue with part two on theory and practice, how to design for inclusivity. In the last part, we discussed about how do you make a building aesthetically pleasing and not look like a medical building, for example. Because it is limited out there what accessibility features or products that considered designed for assistive device for person with disabilities or products that are, for example, fittings like grab bars, stainless steel grab bars usually, and the like that is not aesthetically pleasing. So if you have, for example, a theme like art decor for a building and it is a heritage building, how would you find the design or the products to install in the bathroom and um, in other parts of the building to make it much more integrated or doesn't look out of place. So this issue of how can you is for the designers and architects, how can you uh, rise up to the challenge to make the building inclusive and more and more people can use your building, especially if it's a public building. For example, it's a commercial building that you'd want everyone else to come and use it. For example, a restaurant, cafes, and um, uh, shopping malls, um, uh, office buildings, and so on. In some countries, you can find that uh, there are more uh, all building stock um, uh, available and the issue of conservation of the significance of the building in terms of either its cultural, historical, or architectural significance. So by law, these aspects of the heritage or historic building is protected and defacing it or destroying it or making changes without a con, uh, getting consent from op- approval from the local authorities or the reven- relevant authorities would incur um, uh, penalties that could even come up to £500,000 in, um, in places such as in the UK. So it is a serious business. Uh, so the architect responsible will need to deal with these two things. One is conservation practice and another is accessibility for people to use the building. On the other hand, the building could even be funded by the Heritage Lottery Fund or by a fund funding agency. Perhaps it is to change from a manor or a townhouse to uh, a museum. So in the in the funding requirements, um, a prerequisite would be to provide access plan to to show how one could um, uh, design for people as many people to be included and as many uh, visitors to come to the place. 
uh, in order to obtain the funds. So there is these two things that, that the architect uh, would have to deal with. So at the same time, the client and uh, conservationist uh, and conservation planner or pl- uh, planning officer would uh, be critical or uh, of the um, the proposal in terms of conservation principles. So of late, even significantly in the year 2000s, when the Dis- Disability Discrimination Act uh, was uh, enacted in, in England and Wales, especially um, because there are many historic buildings that are also used as offices. So the issue of reasonable adjustment became very uh, much more important. What is reasonably that one could adjust or one could accommodate to get persons with disabilities to be included, um, especially if it's uh, to do with employment as well. So there's this anti-discrimination act it was giving um, a push to the public um, to to consider accessibility, to consider inclusivity at that time. So going back to um, designing to include as many people as possible, that is the extreme in terms of conservation practice or uh, renovating, refurbishing, um, or redeveloping a um, historic building or historic building is part of the complex of buildings. So that is the challenge to actually um, find how to integrate, even with a symbol, the international access symbol, with this, which is, as everyone notice, um, white uh, pictogram against blue background. People call it the wheelchair logo, but it's actually called international symbol for access. It's not only for wheelchair users, it's for all persons with disabilities. So if you want to uh, include that sign in your building, in, in your building is some um, a Georgian building, for example, or a Victorian building with with brickwork. Suddenly, you have this blue uh, symbol there, so it it makes this um, the um, uh, that particular wall that you put that very ugly and contrast. Yeah, so I have seen the uh, this integration the integration of the symbols to be um, made into copper or black and white rather than that colors that I mentioned. So these are the things that may have to please this effort of how to come out with a design would please both parties, whether it's conservationists or whether it's the local authorities uh, or the... um, um, what do you call it, the funding agency for access planning. So the architect has to negotiate a variety of uh, things to in order to make some decision that please everyone in this respect. 
I'm giving you the illustration of um, conservation practice because that is the extreme in terms of how to design for inclusivity. Because anything other than that would be easier, is the argument, um, to negotiate designing a um, sports center, a modern or contemporary sports center it's not a problem, into not too much problem in how you want to design for it. A totally new building is also much more easier than to adapt, reuse an existing building that wasn't covered by the laws earlier in any country. And such was the problem that we find um, in our country, in Malaysia, um, the... Uh, the, people are starting to use old buildings. We are happy that people are starting to use old buildings. It's better for sustainable development or the whole idea of uh, reusing, uh, recycling, reusing, yeah. So readapting um, the use from a, a previous use to a new use. We see that in, in the city centers and independent um, shop owners, maybe art shop, artists, bookshops, um, independent arts venues. Um, they occupy the first floor, second floor, third floor, or fourth floor of these um, older buildings. Therein lies the problem of accessibility where even these independent uh, operators have very little funds, obviously, and we just occupy any floors, and these are the the cheaper ones, first floor to fourth floor, uh, to rent, because these buildings are owned by, is a transitional phase for the building. The building probably is earmarked to be demolished anyway, or that building occupies the space or the site in which there could be a much more um, a new development will take place. So um, all in all, it's more like um, it's not gentrification, but it is where the bohemian or the artists would come before gentrification happens in an inner city uh, in Malaysia, which is something that happens elsewhere as well um, that we know of. So, talking about that, one could argue that issue number one is heritage building um, and complementing conservation practice with accessibility. Issue number two is the economic side of occupying upper levels of an existing building that have no access. So we don't talk about building devoid of all these other factors to be considered, meaning culture and practice for the first one, meaning economic uh, level or the cost of a building or the cost of having to rent out a space. Yeah, it's often that... Um, for persons with disabilities, um, I have went upstairs before with crutches, but sometimes the staircases um, 
uh, uh, have a very, what do you call, inclination that is steep. 45 degrees to 60 degrees inclination, which is has increased the risk factor in terms of safety. An inclination of 30 degrees would be the best. These are things to be considered when you acquire a property and you want people to come or you acquire or, or you lease or uh, rent out the first floor and upwards, that set of staircases could determine safety factors, uh, could determine whether people want to go up and down. So that's one. We noticed that some buildings, older buildings, that were built in thirty, sorry, 40s or 50s in Malaysia, uh, just such like, such as the Chinese Assembly Hall near Jalan Kampung Atta. It may not be the exact road or it may not be the exact name, but I've been there. Um, there was an accessible toilet on the ground level and there were ramps coming in from the road and they were helping as well during an event for um, those needing access disabled people needing access to park as close as possible. They were accommodating the the organizers were, were requested those sort of assistance. Um, but they didn't know that there was an accessible toilet. When I first contacted the organizers, they didn't know about the accessible toilet. They knew of a lift and they did a ramp to the auditorium but there are no place for you to to park yourself in that auditorium area because basically you have to if you got up with a on a wheelchair with a ramp you'd be in the the circulation space there is no space for you to to sort of be with the rest of the audience um no proper space for you and i came with a pair of crutches because i wasn't sure about the toilet and other facilities. I wasn't sure about exactly how accessible it is. So there are many factors here. The role of the organizer, the role of the, the owner of the building, the organizer, the person who leased the space, um, and customer service, if there's any, or assistance. It's quite complicated when it comes to making design inclusivity happen because design per se would figure it, figure it, uh, in maybe 30% to 50% of the time, whereas the rest is to do with trained personnel or customer service. So when we deal with existing buildings, may it be a conservation, um, protected under conservation law, or may it be a building that is just to be adapted and reused again? Um, often there are issues regarding accessibility 
or that there are challenges to access and use the building. And this is the set of problems that a designer, if they were to design and renovate the building according to universal design principles, this are the set of problems that they would have to consider and they may have to work it out with the owner of the building on reasonable adjustments. Just say it takes half a million pounds to do a proper lift and breaking down parts of the building and there would be too much of a cost to bear and the local authority would agree with that. So they waiver um, that condition for the renovation uh, to build a lift. And um, so what are the options? What are the options? So one is the law could protect people and insist that a, a proper lift to be installed or... Um, and one could have the consent or the the uh, motivation by the client to want to install the lift. You know, these are tricky things. Tricky things that the architect could be involved with. And we're always focusing on the architect here because um, the architect do not only design but resolve problems dealing with the local authority for the client. So how, whether the architect exhausts all, all approach and ways to actually uh, resolve by design or not and considered how to come up with uh, a design that, that uh, suit the budget of the client is something else. I would like to conclude here that this topic is is um, a, a vast topic on how to design for inclusivity and there are different types of buildings and different contexts and issues and situations that we could find ourselves to deal with and that we need to um, uh, furnish ourselves with, with uh, the understanding on disability, understanding on barriers, among other things in order for us to innovate um, and include persons with disabilities into the design. And also, this would also um, make us more confident in approaching this subject. So thank you very much for listening. Have a good day. And we'll see you in another podcast soon.